0: Monday, March 23rd, 2020, Born the Battle, brought to you by the Department of Veterans Affairs, the podcast that focuses on inspiring veteran stories and puts a highlight on important resources, offices, and benefits for our veterans. I am your host, Marine Corps Veteran Tanner Iskra. Hope everyone had a good week outside of podcast land. Hope everyone is practicing that social distancing. However, I still hope that you're exercising and getting away from that old cabin fever. No ratings or reviews this week. Uh, which I'm fine with because last week we had a lot of reviews. However, my math or Marines detected that we've reached a milestone, 200 combined ratings and reviews. Do you know what that did for us? About a week and a half ago at the time of this release, we were the number one show for a couple of days straight in the government category on iTunes. iTunes also put us in the top shows in that category for the better part of last week. Why is that? Well, it was because of your listenership, your ratings, and especially your reviews that did that. So thank you. Let's keep it going. Because remember, the more ratings and reviews not only lets me know how we're doing as far as bringing you what you want, the ratings and reviews and subs give us a better chance to climb in the iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, etc. algorithms, which in turn allows us to reach more veterans out in podcast land and gives them a chance to listen and hear not only these great stories, but the benefits breakdown episodes and the information provided in the news releases. Speaking of news releases, we don't have any uh, new ones this week. However, as they're released, I'll make sure to get it to you. Uh, As far as the latest in coronavirus, if I see anything that gets released on our blog or out in VA social media land, uh, just like last week and the week before that, I'll get on here and do a quick update. And if you haven't heard last week's update on COVID-19, check it out. There are some changes and some new standard operating procedures for when you have to visit, for when you visit a VA facility. All right, so excited to bring you this week's episode. Uh, Today, we have the first woman to ever command a ship in the Navy, and her last name is Iskra. Up until a month ago, we have never spoken. Uh, We had no idea that each other even existed. So the big question was, are we related? We don't know for sure, but... Both of our families came from northern Croatia, Austria region, uh, around the same time. She now lives in my home state of Washington, and she's been to my hometown. And even though she's never met my family, she knew my family existed because she frequents a restaurant that has my family history hanging up on the wall. Just such a weird, amazing connection. Best part, she's a trailblazer. In addition to being the first woman to ever command a ship, she was one of the first three women to become a naval dive officer. And on Capitol Hill, she helped staff and pass an amendment that, among other things, forbade the DoD from requiring U.S. service women from wearing the Abaya garment while stationed in Saudi Arabia. Like I said, complete trailblazer. So, without further ado, I bring to you Navy veteran Darlene Iskra. Enjoy. Darling, I can't believe that I'm in front of you right now. This is amazing. It really is. It's really fun. Um, for anybody that's listening, I want you to know that uh, that before about a month ago, you and I had never talked.
1: Correct. Right? I Didn't mean, even know you existed.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I knew, you know, I had read before, you know, intermittently that an Iskra was the very first woman to ever command a ship in the Navy. And, of course, the first thing I thought was um, – we had to be related in some way. And now I thought that that was way before 1990. You know, oh. I, I did. You know, I, I mean, I was just a Lance Corporal. Maybe I heard it as a Lance Corporal. Maybe I heard it as a Corporal. As I was coming up through the ranks, I just heard that story.
1: But and I didn't make, but I didn't go into command in until 1990.
0: Yeah, that's what I know. Yeah, I know. Oh, yeah. yeah okay. I had, but I had no idea it was 1990. Oh, right, right. I, I, I thought it was, I thought something like that would have happened way earlier than that yeah you know you would have thought (laughs) (laughs) and and for me so for me in 1990 it's it's still pretty recent in my mind um
1: i know (laughs) 30 years ago we we
0: we are we are um i'm I'm understanding that that kids today are now looking at me like i looked at vietnam veterans yeah but for me 1990 is pretty recent um yeah so how we how we met mutual friend through the vfw we linked up and lo and behold uh, in our first conversation we found out both of our families came from Northern Croatia. Isn't that
1: wild? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Iskra in the, in this country isn't that common, but I don't know what it is in Croatia, you know, if it's very common or not. But, I mean, I, I don't know.
0: <laughs> I, I hear from like, you know, there's Iskras in Russia. There's Iskras in, yes. in Slavic, you know, all Slavic countries. Almost like a Jones um, hmm. interesting, uh, interesting note about the, the word Iskra. It, it was a former Polish jet at mm-hmm. one point
1: mm-hmm.
0: it was, uh, it was Lenin's first newspaper. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew that. Yeah.
1: Uh, Did you know it means spark?
0: Yes, it does. Yes. A gunnery sergeant with me at the Black Sea Rotational Force out, out in Romania. And he was Bosnian and his last name was Hadzik. So he knew my last name and he knew what it meant. Mm-hmm. So my nickname immediately became Sparky.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, That kind of goes with your job too, kind of. A little bit. The communications a l- a l- and stuff.
0: A little bit, the spark. You even live in Washington now, yes. like my home state.
1: I actually lived in Washington before I joined the Navy. Um, and I, I was up there because I had, a, I w- my first husband was a sailor. And uh, so we wound up in, in Washington and then we got divorced. and. I stayed there until I joined the Navy myself.
0: Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Now, now Iskra isn't your married name. It's,
1: it's no, b- no. It's, it's my, It's yeah. It's, it's my, blood. Yeah. Gotcha. It's my, it's my birth name, as they say now. Gotcha. Don't say maiden anymore. It's birth name. <laughs> 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 and the new vernacular. <laughs>
0: um, so, you kind of grew up, you kind of lived in Washington State, and, and you still live in Washington State now, but you, grew, you I didn't know you lived there before you joined the, the Navy.
1: Yeah, I, I lived in California all my life. Went to college, you know, and then I got married, and then we moved to Washington in 1975, and I lived there till 79. But it was my home state of record the whole time I was in the Navy. Tax-free. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, for those
0: that don't know, my grandfather was the first person in my family to be born in America, uh, but he still had a lot of the old country in him. Yeah, He had two older brothers that were born there. Uh in what is now croatia and, and and he had another girl that was born in austria and he was the last to really really know the origins of our family history he said that at one point that we had family in ohio or australia so i mean do you know anybody in either ohio or australia no okay no okay grew up in california yeah gotcha gotcha, gotcha.
1: and we were the only Eskers i knew
0: I, I can imagine that i can imagine it's not a very common name like no. you said um all right so in addition to this weird family coincidence, yes. um, <laughs> you know, I, you're know, you simply a groundbreaker, honestly. And, I, and I'm so honored to be able to just sit down and talk with you. One of the first three-mile fa- diving officers in the Navy. First woman to ever command a vessel in the Navy. Why do they say vessel? It's a ship. It's It was a ship, right? The opportunity was a ship.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was a ship. It was, Commission, big it was a commissioned was ship. Yeah, it was big. no. <laughs> I mean, well, I mean, the idea is big, yeah, but the yeah. ship was actually quite small. So it's basically an ocean-going tug.
0: Okay, but it was still big enough to, to tug some big ships. Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. it was a full, it's vessel. a
1: powerful little little ship. Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but before before all this, you you decided to join the service um, yes. in the first place. Do you remember that decision?
1: Yes, I do, and it was financial. Hmm. You know, I'd gotten divorced. I was working three jobs up in Anacortes. I lived just living in Anacortes, Washington, and um, working with the armed services YMCA in Oak Harbor. And I also had a job teaching at the local swimming pool. And I had a third job where I was teaching physical fitness at the local junior college. And I was making like $750 a month doing like working like 80 hours a week, yeah. and I thought, well, oh, I saw it. I saw an advertisement in the Seattle Post Intelligencer at the time. The OPI, yeah, about mid-level managers wanted, and it was like, you have just have to have your bachelor's degree, you know, blah blah blah. And then down at the bottom, it was like U.S. Navy recruiting office. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty slick. So, so I said, okay, I called. And I had to go down to Seattle, and I spoke to a woman there, and um, it was kind of exciting. And I thought, you know what, I, I, I was not doing well in Anacortis, and I knew I needed to get out of that situation. So I thought, you know what, I'm just going to change my life.
0: Wow. Like so many others. Talk to me about being one of the first female divers in American naval history.
1: Well, um, you know, we didn't know that at the time and when i was working at the pool in in uh, one of my coworkers says to me oh you should look at you're a good swimmer you should look into navy diving and i'm like there's divers in the navy <laughs> i had no clue yeah and so when i talked to my recruiter she's like oh yeah when you get to ocs officer candidate school they'll they'll do a volunteer and you you know there's this physical requirements you have to pass and other requirements and i'm like okay fine so I get to ocs and sure enough about six weeks into the 16-week program they call for volunteers for divers diving officers and so i'm like okay tie me up and you know it's basically a you have to do a run in a certain amount of time and push ups, so many push-ups so many sit-ups you know that whole thing and mm. then once you pass that then you um, have other requirements you have to do. So anyway, that's how that happened. <laughs> just, it was just kind of one. But of But they didn't tell you that you were going to be one of the first of the. Oh no, I didn't. I had no idea that they had they had just opened the the, the program to women like the six months before. No idea that we were the first. So we wound up going to dive school, which was here in, at the Washington Navy Yard. Yeah, and there was a woman in the class ahead of us, and there had. Been women who tried before but didn't make it. Got and, you. And, and I want to clarify also that there were enlisted divers well before women diving officers. Okay. There had been enlisted divers uh, since 1975. Got you. But this is in 1979. And yeah, so the, so the women officers were finally um, able to go into the program. And it, it all also, I found out many years later, it all came about because they opened ships to women back then, mm. at, in 1978. And so then they decided, well, because we can open this other program to women as well, because on the tenders, the, the big um, repair ships and, and sh- ship tenders, they had dive lockers. And so they figured, well, women can can be in charge of the dive lockers and so therefore go on these ships. So that's how that kind of all happened. So what was really cool was I was diving officer on the USS Hector, which was stationed out of uh, an AR Station out of San Francisco, and um, there's only like six women on the whole ship of nine hundred men. Oh my gosh! Yeah, it was pretty weird. <laughs> yeah, what was billeting like? How did how did they figure Billiding? that? Billeting? Oh yeah, well as officers you get your own sure stateroom.
0: Got you. So that was easy. But you had enlisted women too at the same time. No, oh just six women or the six women were, or six officer.
1: women officers, and the rest were enlisted enlisted men. And the women enlisted women came uh, about. A year and a half after, mm-hmm. so it was just at the start of this whole integration of women in ships.
0: What was the biggest challenge at that time?
1: Um, really, the Hector was an awesome ship to be on board. The officers were very supportive. The CO was very supportive, and um, I, I managed to. Um, Get my guys behind me because I was I was awesome at physical training back then. <laughs> I was like buff, you know, and so I, and and they hadn't even had a, a physical training requirement in the dive locker. I mean, they were just like, really, it's funny. Oh wow! So I get them out there to you know, running and 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 um, you know PT, and I'm kicking their butts, <laughs> and they're like, whoa. And Sinistra is pretty damn cool, you yeah. know. They just impressed the heck out of them, so. It's yeah. not, it doesn't take much for a lot of guys. <laughs> I know, it apparently not. <laughs> it doesn't take much. <laughs> but yeah, after that, it was like, it was great. And, then, and of course, the other good thing, was um, there had been some drug related problems in the dive locker? This is in the early eighties, right? And, yeah, you know, uh, late 70s,
0: early coming yeah. out of Vietnam.
1: So one of the first things my boss said to me was, "I need you to. Like, we think that there are problems in the dive locker with drugs, and so we need you to clean it up. So of course, you know, you come in there with your drug dogs and, you, and your inspection, and yeah, we found marijuana. And then we so then we tested everybody, your analysis mm-hmm. screening, and popped three. And uh, so I went from a dive locker of nine men to six men. And then after that my boss was like, I want you to go on every single dive. I'm like, Okay, sir. Sure, no problem, sir. <laughs> because we had been told as officers we wouldn't get to do hardly any diving. So I was out there every day. It was oh, great.
0: Wow. And it sounds like you went everywhere too, uh, all over the Pacific, Diego yep. Garcia, yep. Kenya. It sounds like a great yep. gig.
1: No, oh, it was it was a wonderful tour. Yeah. Yeah, it was wonderful. You,
0: you requested a transfer.
1: Well, no, I was got remarried and my husband was getting transferred me, down to San Diego. Let
0: me rephrase that. According to the time article that I read, oh, okay. you requested a transfer. Well, but, but
1: uh, that was later.
0: Got you, got you.
1: Okay, so I was I had gotten remarried and we we're down to San Diego and I was in a job that was pretty dead end.
0: Yeah.
1: It was a staff job and was teaching, you know, it was fine, but it wasn't really not wasn't, wasn't what you did, we were doing. Exactly. We weren't diving out in out in Kenya. Correct. Yeah. So I saw this, there used to be this uh, it, uh, magazine that was, uh, it's called Faceplate and it's a magazine of diving, Navy diving and salvage. And they still, they still publish it, but it, they publish it online now. But um, I the Magazine to,
0: industry has changed. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Just like newspapers.
1: Yeah. So I, I happened to see an article about this new class of ARSs, uh, which is the kind of ship that divers go on, mm-hmm. other than tenders, that was being built as a gender-neutral platform. And this was the first ship in the Navy that was being built as a gender-neutral platform. I mean, the tenders that the women had been on before were, they had to be modified to accommodate women. Okay. So now they're- We're so talking that, like
0: heads and, and building. Yeah, building got, and gotcha, heads, gotcha, yeah. gotcha,
1: gotcha. So um, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is a great opportunity for me. Because you know, I mean, I've, I could see. I mean, i have been in the Navy four years, and I'm like thinking, man, there's nothing left for me here. And a lot of women got out at that time who wanted to go uh, on ships because there just wasn't anything available. So I called my detailer, which is basically your assignment officer, and I said, I'd really want to go on one of these on this ship, the Safeguard. He goes, Well, the Safeguard's been you know billeted, but we have the, the Grasp, which is just being um, they're starting to do the manning. At that point this is 1984 yeah and so i'm like oh this is what i want so that's when i submitted my request for transfer and it turned out the grasp was being um built up in sturgeon bay wisconsin and it was gonna eventually be stationed out in Norfolk, virginia so yeah i went cross country and that was the kind of the start of my whole new adventure
0: because you were like heads and building like that's that's i mean (laughs) To, to yeah. nowadays we don't even think about that you know, <laughs> know. like but back well, then it's amazing i mean it's,
1: that it's was not, the it's- whole criteria like <laughs> heaven forbid you share the head with a man right good lord yeah
0: so you eventually became opso xo yeah, of ships that was
1: my first on the grass i was the ops officer and then and well pre-commissioning so it, it was um that was kind of unfortunate because when you're pre-commissioning the ship, doesn't really get underway all that much. Yeah. But I did. We did get her through the whole commissioning process, and then underway, and and all of the training. So I did manage to, you know, get my uh, feet wet again on being uh, what they call driving the ship. Basically, you con the ship and yeah. take it here and there. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so then I got selected for executive officer. And-
0: was um. Was overall command a goal at this point for you?
1: You know, it. You know I thought eventually, if, if I kept going, that it, it would be. I mean, I never in a million years thought I'd be the first. <laughs> never. That was not the goal. The goal was <laughs> to have a career commensurate with my male counterparts.
0: Yeah. Yeah, of course.
1: Yeah. And so I did the best I could, just like everybody else.
0: At that point, was it known that no woman had ever commanded a vessel in the Navy?
1: Yes. But, you know, there were women who were senior to me who were in the surface warfare community, which is related. Yeah. And so I was thinking eventually one of them would. And in fact, one woman was selected for command before me. Mm-hmm. Didn't happen, though. She went to command after I did.
0: Oh, wow. Wow. Um, when did you know that you were going to get called to command your own ship?
1: Well, I had, I was on, I was XO and we were on deployment. I was on the USS Hoist, and um, my detailer's like, You need to get engineering officer of the watch qualified. Now, this was like the last qualification I needed, but I'm not an engineer. And so it was really scary to me. But being on a diesel ship, it actually turned out to be fairly straightforward. So now I was XO of the ship, and I'm finally getting my engineering officer of the watch qualifications and then after that i got selected for command but again i didn't think i would be the first one yeah you know because my detailer's like well you know you, you, we can give you a little break because i had i basically gone from c duty c duty cd three three ships in a row yeah with a little break in between for schools but you know so I'm like, fine, you know they like, well, we'll send you to the war college. okay, fine. Oh no, we'll send you okay, fine. I mean, I was pretty open to whatever they wanted <laughs> to do with me.
0: Hi, sir, I ma'am, whatever you want. Uh,
1: yeah, yeah, I mean, but I knew I was going to command eventually yeah. yeah and so but apparently up at the Bureau of Naval Personnel, there was a little bit of a discussion about who was going to be the first woman to command a ship because this other woman like I said had been selected first. Yeah. But she had been reassigned to a, um, a another 3-year tour before, between her executive officer tour and her commander tour. So they they were look whether to pull her out of her current job, but but my detailer was like I need I need Darlene. I don't have the, the depth and breadth of officers that the Surface Warfare community has. So I need this woman to go into command and and it, it will be the first, but you know, I need her. And so it was really not political, but it just was a necessity. Well,
0: that's how it should have been.
1: Of course. Yeah, yeah. the but needs was, of the Navy. But it, but it still became kind of political. Oh, sure, sure, of, of the, course, it,
0: of course. The thing. Now, The other woman, did she end up becoming a commander too? She did. What was her name?
1: Um, Deborah Gerns. And then shortly after that, another woman named Jeannie Miller uh, became uh CO, so. Got you. We were the first three, and, and the other two happened in 91. Got you. So.
0: 1990. I mean, right. how old was the Navy at that point?
1: Oh, I don't know. 200 and some years old. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's amazing <laughs> that
0: it took that long. Well, you know,
1: the whole gender stereotypes of women and their roles in society were, were changing. I mean, they had been changing since the 70s, but your, it just your, took the military a little bit longer to accept some of that stuff.
0: Your generation and generation before that saw a lot of that.
1: Yeah. You know, so...
0: Yeah. And of course, you know, the government's usually about a generation behind on anything. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, what was the mission? So you took command of the USS Opportune. Yes. What was the mission of that?
1: Um, Like I said, an ocean-going tug, and it, and it also had salvage capabilities. So we had a onboard towing machine that could tow disabled ships. We could use it to pull ships that had... On a ground off, you know, after just, just a little bit more to it than that, but we also had the capability of a heavy ton lift, so we could, you know, send our divers or whatever down to the the bottom and pick up anchors or pick up even small vessels, you know, and and things like that. that very we bring heavy, thi- very
0: heavy things at the bottom of the ocean.
1: Yeah, airplanes. Airplanes were a big. A big deal back uh, in the uh, 80s and 90s in terms of, you know, get, especially in the Norfolk, Virginia area, because you'd get pilots out of Oceania and they would they would crash and then you'd have to go pick up the remnants.
0: Wow. Yeah, I saw that. I mean, that that was kind of the, the opportunity missions ever since it was commissioned. Oh, yeah. Back in, you know, what was it, 44.
1: 44.
0: It had a, a very storied history of covering down aircraft, aiding distressed ships. Yeah. Um, in
1: fact, Opportunity was one of the vessels this, in the mid 80s that helped do the recovery on the Challenger. Wow. Yeah. Wow. In the mid 80s. Yeah.
0: Um, you even got the opportunity to help Florida with Hurricane Andrew, right?
1: Yes, indeed.
0: How'd yeah. that go down?
1: Um, that was an interesting time. We were actually towing a vessel down through the Panama Canal and on our way back, the hurricane hit. And so we were told to kind of stay away because we had to go of course right through florida because we were on the east coast yeah and so then they told us to pull into miami and, and we unloaded some supplies and then they i'm sorry we pulled into key west florida and we unloaded the supplies then we went to miami and started helping to actually we did a couple of things the main mission of the navy down there was to clean up the schools so the schools could restart back you know, start back was, up, because this was in yep. August and september. so so we would go to the local schools and rip out the carpeting and throw away the books, and you know we we had whole teams. I had another set of crew who went down and helped helped with FEMA to help take insurance information about the people who had lost their homes. Oh, wow. So yeah, we yeah. So we had two missions then. So it was it was pretty it was pretty interesting.
0: Andrew stuck out to me because as a kid, I mean, I, you know, you're gonna laugh at this, but as a kid, that was the first hurricane that I can remember that really affected a lot of people. That I remember that's the first hurricane for me that was like you know I saw the the imagery of the houses boarded up and everybody preparing and and all the aftermath. So. When I, I would, saw that, you helped out with that. That was yeah. the first thing that stuck out to me.
1: What was interesting, too, because as CO, I had an opportunity to go up in a helicopter mm. and observe the the destruction from the air. It, it was actually like a, a, a bomb had hit. I mean, there was not a stick of wood in the mainly affected area. Wow. You know, it was just amazing to look at. Mm. Yeah.
0: Very good. Now, were you the Opportunity's last commander?
1: Yes and no. It's kind of a maybe, weird maybe the, the story. Maybe
0: the last active commander? Yeah. Because it, yeah. it was decommissioned shortly after, right?
1: Yeah. I left. I had some medical problems, and I, so I had some surgery. And so then I left, and and then my the XO took over, actually took over the job of decommissioning the ship.
0: Gotcha. That's a great lead-in. You left the Navy in 2000 after 21 years. Mm-hmm. Before I ask what the reason was to finally hang up the uniform, I want I just got to ask you a couple more questions okay. about your service. First I want to know who was either your greatest mentor or your best friend while you were in.
1: Well, that's a very interesting question. I don't know that I was really mentored through my career. Although I was also I was married to a, another military officer who happened to be a Navy SEAL, mm. and we talked a lot about leadership and yeah. how to you know how to approach different things. I wish I could say that, if, that there were some women that helped me out, but unfortunately, I was well, at the, the first tip of the spear. <laughs> so, I, you know, my my husband was was a very good mentor and a very good friend. I have some long term friends that I still communicate with. That I met in in the Navy, and a couple of them have become admirals. <laughs> wow! Yeah, wow. so it's kind of like, ooh, I knew her when. <laughs> but, so, um, yeah.
0: in a way, you were their mentor. No sense. You
1: know, some of them think of me as that, and I just kind of look at them and think, "Holy mackerel, that is just so hard to understand." You know, but humbling. Yes, very much so. Because, like you said, I opted to get out, and and they managed to keep going. Yeah. And I think a lot of it did have to do with mentors. Uh, I think even though they were not that much junior than I, in some of their fields, they had there were more women. Mm. Like my field, diving and salvage, there's none. <laughs> there still are very few. Yeah, you know. But in the Supply Corps, there were there had been women already who had been admirals, and in the Nurse Corps, you know, obviously there had been women forever. And so it's it was they had more opportunity. And and of course men help mentor as well. I'm not just saying you had to have a woman mentor, yeah. but but I also think and and this came up during my research when I finally uh, got into grad school because I was curious as to how they stayed the course when I felt like I couldn't stay the course. And a lot of it had to do with their uh, their ability their resilience. Their ability ability to let things flow, to not worry about when someone said something inappropriate to you, and and. Uh, and, and you took care of it, of course, right then. But, you know, it just and, and I just allowed and I don't know exactly what, why my personality was such. Because you're I, an Iskra. <laughs> I took things so personally, <laughs> yes.
0: You ask my wife, she'll tell me. Yeah, that, that is so my husband.
1: Oh, my God. <laughs> so So, yeah, so it just started getting me down. You know, I started getting more and more like, I can't handle this anymore. And it was a lot of gendered talk. Yeah. You know, women don't belong in the Navy. Women shouldn't be on ships. Women shouldn't do this. Women shouldn't do that. And I'm like, I've heard this all my stupid career and I'm tired of it.
0: Heavy lie so. lied the crown. Pardon? Heavy heavy lie, the crown.
1: hmm Yeah.
0: Mm. Yeah. What was your favorite job or post in the Navy?
1: Post Navy?
0: No. Po- or, While it was or, in the Navy. Yeah. Or your favorite post. Oh, Your oh, favorite oh, okay, job okay, okay, or your okay. favorite post. Yeah.
1: You know, well, of course, my first job on the USS Hector, that's what made me want to stay in. And I, it, I can see
0: even when you talk about it today, you, your eyes light it, up. It
1: it was a really good tour, you know. Then things started going downhill. So, so, and of course, you know, I'm 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 working it. I'm I'm on ships, and I liked being at sea. Yeah. And of course, when I took command, it was like, wow, this is awesome. Yeah. But that wasn't my favorite tour, even though I it was a very important job, and I felt very proud to be in command of the ship. But actually, my most favorite job, and I went there kicking and screaming because my husband got stationed there, was in Guam, and I went to uh, the ComNav Commander Naval Forces Marianas, and he was dual hatted as the the commander in chief Pacific fleet rep to, you know, the Western Pacific. Some long title. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And it's all acronyms, <laughs> but I do. I had better set it out. Anyway, so I turned out to be his civil military affairs officer. Okay. So it wasn't really diving related at all. But so I got to go to all the different island nations out there. So we went to, you know, the, the Federated States of Micronesia, the Commonwealth of Northern Marianas, of course, Guam, the, the Republic of Palau. And I got to interact with you know, the State Department personnel and FEMA and even the Peace Corps. Yeah, Because the Peace Corps was kind of like, oh, military. And I'm like, no, no, we're here to help. Yeah, right. A little bit of we outreach.
0: A little bit of outreach yes, trying, exactly. to, trying to bridge that gap.
1: So, And we had a couple of disasters that we worked out there. A big mudslide in pala in um, Ponape, and there was an aircraft crash in Guam. Really horrific. But the diving, that was the thing. And even though I wasn't in a diving billet, I mean, you're in this in the South Pacific. The diving is awesome. <laughs> I go every week, and I be out there. So it
0: turned into a hobby too. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but especially.
1: the but the job was just so much fun too. So civil
0: affairs marines. When I was at out of when we were at the Black Sea Division of Forces, and we worked pretty closely. The civil fire. We worked pretty much across the hallway from the civil affairs marines, and it just looked like they were always having a great time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I can understand where that would be.
1: Well, one of the things that I did in. And the first admiral that I worked for really wasn't so keen on it. But the second admiral that came in, they had an admiral's barge. I guess that's what they call it. It was actually a little boat, you know, a really nice 35-foot, 50-foot boat. Noted. <laughs> and and so, I, you know, I said, but we'd have a lot of foreign vessels come in. Mm-hmm. And the admiral would occasionally have a little reception for him. Well, you know, I thought, you know, here they are. They're in there's foreign country, and and you know, I really should. We really should do more for that. So I convinced the admiral that. When a, when a ship came in, that we need to do a little harbor cruise and do a little reception with all the little CEOs from Guam and plus the C, the officers of the ship. But that was that worked out really good. <laughs> it so fun.
0: Makes makes make a making an event that not many people forget. Right. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. So you kind of, kind of already kind of led in about why you decided, to, reason to, to finally hang up the uniform. Mm-hmm. You, you did a congressional fellowship. Yes, you helped staff and pass an amendment in two thousand three, in the two thousand three De- defense authorization bill, which forbade the DoD from requiring U.S. Service women to wear the is it abaya Ab- abaya while stationed in Saudi Arabia. Right. Basically, the burqa without without the head covering, right? <laughs> I, uh, yeah, there was a time that the DoD considered this. Oh
1: uh, well, in two thousand three, it actually started after the Persian Gulf War in nineteen ninety one. And for some reason, the Air Force, when they, when they had their, their their base in Saudi Arabia, yeah. decided that the women were going to wear the the abaya when they're out in town. Not only did they have to wear the abaya, but they had to. Walk behind the men, even if you're an officer, you had to sit in the back seat. You couldn't drive. So even if you're an enlisted woman and that was your job was to drive the truck, you couldn't do it. I mean, you just you really they they were telling women that they basically had to act like Muslim women. Amazing. And there was this one woman who's now a senator, Martha McSally. She was an Air Force, she was a major at the time, but she was, you know, active pilot, a Thunderbird pilot. And of course, she bristled at this whole thing, and, and sure. not only because she was an officer, but being very religious, she felt that they were forcing her to to um, abide by these Muslim rules and not her own Christian values. And she tried everything, or just, she or
0: just American cultural norms,
1: exactly. Yeah, but she she was looking at it from a religious perspective. So gotcha, gotcha. anyway, so so that was in in, in the early nineties, and. Yeah. Of course, I did my fellowship in 2003, so and this is still going on, this whole abaya thing back in Saudi Arabia. So I met Martha at an event, a, a woman, a woman's event in, in in DC. She was talking to a, a group called this Sea uh, Service Leadership Association. Yeah. And and I was like I said I was at the I was at the office of Senator Maria Cantwell of Washington State. And she was talking about this and that, how she was working with a congressman from New Hampshire, I think it was, and then her own uh, congressman, senator. But she needed, and they were both Republicans, and she needed a, a Democratic person, you know, to do the bipartisan thing. And so after she talked, I, I went up to her and I said, you know, I think this is an important issue and I'm working with Maria Cantwell and maybe we can work something out. So she went and talked to Senator Cantwell and and we did work it out. That's great. Yeah. That's great. It was really cool. What was really fun, though, was when Senator Cantwell stood up in front of Congress and actually called me by name. So I'm in the congressional record, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was really cool.
0: That's that's great. That's I mean, that's amazing. I didn't think I couldn't believe I can't believe that that would be a thing in 2003. The, 2000, the reason 2003 for me is big because that was the year I joined.
1: Uh-huh. I know. In 2003. Yeah. So then what happened was, of course, this rule went into effect and then they left Saudi Arabia. So it was <laughs> kind of like a moot point. Still. But still. Yeah. You're, Absolutely. Able, to, you're able, to, yeah, yeah.
0: able to make that point. Yes. And if we ever go back, that, that rule will still be there. Yes. I mean, like you said, it's congressional record. Yeah. You know, when I think of of women icons in the military, you know, I I personally thought of Molly Pitcher, Betsy Ross, in a broader sense, I think of Clara Barton, Louisa May Alcott, great women from either, you know, revolutionary times or mm-hmm. from around the time that women fought for, for the right to vote, like in the early t- 1900s, suffrage at times. And, you know, I think it's important that we can't forget to look around and realize that Women are unfortunately, and fortunately, because we have the honor to meet them, are still making history. You know, women like Air Force and NASA's Colonel Eileen Collins, you know, in the Marine Corps, we always learned about General Mutter, Mm -hmm. General Dunwoody, recently with the Army. Right. Now, you've written two books on this subject, uh, Women in the United States Armed Forces and Breaking Through the Brass Ceiling: Strategies for Success for Elite Military Women. Who, for you, who is one woman in the military that you want to ensure that nobody
1: forgets? Well, obviously, Ann Dunwoody, you know, being the first woman four star uh, general in the United States military. But another woman who I think is, is phenomenal is Admiral Michelle Howard, who was the first four star admiral in the Navy mm-hmm. and in the sea services, because there still hasn't been a four star woman in the Coast Guard. Or in the Marine Corps. Nope. <laughs> so uh, she's awesome. She's really awesome. and of course, she's retired now. Yeah. But she also became one of the highest, in the highest positions of any woman in the military in terms of she was like the vice. Now I can't remember if she was of the vice CNO or vice Bureau of per- Naval Personnel. Okay. But but then she was, she was also in charge of the expeditionary force that saved captain phillips from the pirates in, oh my gosh in whenever that was 2008 or nine yeah or yeah, that was. yeah 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 she was in charge of that mission
0: did not know that
1: yeah she's awesome and she used to be local yeah i have her email i think if you want it I can,
0: absolutely
1: i, you would, I love it. would love to interview her absolutely. absolutely yeah so you
0: know if you're listening to this that will be coming hopefully <laughs> hopefully so i mean is there like a, a like a, a group a sorority or fraternity if you will of like groundbreaking women like do you guys just all know of each other or yeah.
1: yeah pretty much you know it all comes together at the women in military service for America Memorial which is at the entrance to Arlington Cemetery in Arlington Virginia their mission is to educate the public about the the wonderful deeds of military women through History, yeah. Uh, American women, you know, so they have a archival area and they do oral histories and written histories, and and then they had and the memorial is also a museum, yeah. That you can visit. The reason I know about it is
0: because as a marine for a while, I was the commandant's videographer, mm-hmm. and we would host the sunset parades every Tuesday, mm-hmm. yep. And we would do the the little soiree, if you will, at the Women's History Memorial. And that's how I got to know. It. But mm-hmm. that, but if I didn't know, if I wasn't in that billet, mm-hmm. I would have never have known about it. Right.
1: Well, there are so many women that I speak to now. I'm, I've been appointed as the, Washi- one of the Washington State ambassadors for the Women's Memorial in order to get the word even further out outside of Washington D.C. Oh wow! And when I talk to women at different events that I attend in Washington, they have no, they don't have a clue
0: in Washington State.
1: Yeah, Washington State. Yeah, yeah they don't know anything, really, anything about it. So it's. It, and I was just looking at a lot of these because I'm here in DC right now, mm-hmm. brochures, you know, tourist brochures, and it, and I'm thinking, where is the Women's Memorial on this map? <laughs> not there. Even in the Fodor's uh, guide to Washington DC, it's it, not in there. If I'm you're thinking. not,
0: if you're not, you know, there's no visual to this <laughs> podcast. But behind her there's this table where there's just all these. Pamphlets. It's
1: <laughs> not there. And I'm thinking, I need to do something about that. Yeah, absolutely. I want to start a letter writing oh. campaign, I think, uh, to AAA maps and to, you know, Rick Stevens, Washington, D.C. I'm going to do all that stuff. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> what? What's going on with it lately? Is there anything new going on with well, it? Well,
1: yeah. Actually, the reason I was here was because the founder, General Wilma Vaught's 90th birthday is this month, and they were going to do a big reception for her. But, of course, now that with, everything, with this coronavirus, everything's been canceled. These these other groundbreaking women, mm-hmm. you talked about not having maybe a
0: mentor, either male or female, in, in the Navy. Do you see these other women as mentors now? As later on life. Um,
1: Well, yeah. I mean, we, we get together and we talk. And, and interestingly, you, you mentioned one of the books, uh, Women Breaking Through the Brass Ceiling: Women's Military Elite Women. I forget the name. <laughs> it was a very tongue, a lot of, a lot of words there. Yeah. But I, I interviewed the senior most women in the military. So I interviewed the general and, and flag officers. And at that time, there were about 300. Mm-hmm. So this, this all happened in 2006. So I'd, I contacted as many of they were all still well. There was only a one or two that were de- deceased by then, but most of them were all still alive. And plus, then I got information um, on the internet about other other women. Anyway, so I put yeah. together this study about how they made it to the top in a man's world, basically. Yeah. yeah. And and a couple of the women actually interviewed me. Yeah. So I think the fact that I had been uh, one of the pioneers, you know and there was some name recognition there so i really got access to quite a number of these senior women and they were just so wonderful to to speak to yeah and in fact one of them that i interviewed has subsequently moved to kingston washington and now we're really good friends oh wow yeah wow so yeah uh, it yeah. opened doors and it really opened doors for me and i for that i'll, I'll be eternally grateful Absolutely. i mean otherwise you, i wouldn't be i wouldn't have met you if it hadn't been for this
0: oh my gosh <laughs> It's just amazing. I still think of you know Darlene Iskra, and I I just read that and I'm just like, we have to be related. No way. Um, sounds like you keep yourself busy. Yes. Uh, what are you were you working on lately?
1: Okay, so yeah, I'm fully retired, and so I don't get paid, but that's okay. I like I said, I'm the the. One of the ambassadors for the Women in Military Service for America Memorial. I also am with the Women Divers Hall of Fame. I used to be their scholar, one of their scholarship chairs, but I've since you know started to say no. Retired from that too. Just <laughs> I hey. did. I'm with the local chapter of the Military Officer Association of Kitsap County, and I'm very active in that organization. Um, currently, their secretary, but I had been the president, and then I, I've been in there since like 2011. Yeah. And I was in the Rotary, but I also finally said goodbye to that.
0: Elder states—it's it, it, it's, the—it's the product of being an elder statesman. You can say no to things now. That's right. You can say you know what?
1: Well, my admiral friend, she told me, you know, I am just starting to say no because now I'm in the last third of my life, and I want to make it what I want to do. And I thought about that, and I thought, good idea,
0: <laughs> uh, Darlene. What's one thing that you learned in service that carried you that carried with you and everything that you did afterwards?
1: Well, you have to do the job to the best of your ability, and and you take opportunities as they are presented to you. You know, you you called, and I'm like, yes, I'm doing it because this is an opportunity for me to talk about the Women's Memorial, which is very important to me, but also provide. And I know I'm a role model, even though, <laughs> you know, it, it does seem kind of strange to me because i just always felt like i was just doing the best i could and just moving forward i yeah. wasn't pushing an agenda or anything other than that but now my agenda of course is equality for for women
0: and and, and, and we talk about the history of, of women in the military it's still being made yes i mean even today i mean yes i mean even since i've gotten out and it's amazing to see this as a uh, you know like women that are now and enlisted women that passed through the marine corps and school of infantry recently Didn't one just Completed Ranger School,
1: right? But you know, you realize those are all like physical things, yeah. Physical, very physical. And so, like with with me, like when I went in through diving school, I mean, it was a, it was a physically very challenging for me. So you can but definitely there, identify with that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But you know, there are also other firsts that haven't occurred yet in the in the more senior levels, like in the. I think we finally got our first unified commander, and I think it was an Air Force general. I think she's in charge of Stratcom or one of those oh, Air wow. Force. You know, that's the first. We still haven't had, like, any of the Joint Chiefs females. We still haven't had the CEO of an aircraft carrier as a female. You know, and I know that there are some, obviously, other command posts out there that women haven't had yet because they haven't been in the combatant role for that many years.
0: Yeah, haven't been able to get So there's still pipeline. so many. Wow. Is there, a, is there a veteran nonprofit or individual who you've worked with or you had experience with with whom you'd like to mention?
1: Well, yeah, the the two that I just did, SWAN and the Women in Military Service for America, both are nonprofit. They're working on, you know, military sexual trauma and trying to ensure that the people who have been affected by that are getting their day in court and that the people responsible are getting their day in court.
0: Good. Mrs. Iskra, I love saying that. <laughs> Is there something that I haven't asked or something that we didn't cover that you think is important to share to the listeners?
1: Yes. Okay. So I I retired out of the military at 21 years, and I was 48 years old, so still pretty young. Yeah. And I have to say that I felt deflated because I felt like I had been doing such an important job And I really didn't know where to go from there. I had been accepted to a graduate school program at the University of Maryland, which is what I did for... I got my PhD in 2007. So no matter how old you are, there's still opportunities out there. So I got my PhD at age 55. All of my classmates were 25. (laughs) You know, so, I mean, I and they, and they you know, which was really cool. They looked at me like a classmate, not like I'm this old woman, right? Yeah. But then I was still able to go forward. And and like you say, I, I got the, uh, that helped get the Abaya Amendment passed. And I wrote two books. And now I've gotten lazy. I haven't, other than being, being involved in these local uh, organizations, I'm getting kind of lazy. But I'm thinking now I got to get that. I got to get this Women's Memorial and all these tourist (laughs) pamphlets. That's my next big thing. (laughs) So there's always something, you know, there's always something to look forward to. And you have to, you do what you're passionate about. And anybody could tell you, I'm passionate about women and their equality. There are nearly 2 million women veterans who served and deserve the best care anywhere. At each VA Medical Center nationwide, A Women Veterans Program Manager is available to advise, advocate, and coordinate care for women veterans. Women veterans who are interested in receiving care at VA should call the Women Veterans Call Center at 855 VA Women or contact the nearest VA Medical Center and ask for the Women Veterans Program Manager.
0: What a treat and what an honor to sit down with Darlene. Super excited to keep in contact. And trace the family lines. For more information on the Women in Military Service for America Memorial, you can visit simply womensmemorial.org. In addition, for more information on the Service Women's Action Network, you can visit servicewomen, all one word, .org. This week's Born the Battle event of the week is Marine Corps veteran Ofa Mae Johnson. And it comes by way of the World War I Centennial Commission. You can find them at, and this is all one word, World War I Centennial.org. Though legends of women dressing as males to fight for the United States has been spoken of since the Revolution, women were not allowed to legally enlist in the armed services, with the Marine Corps being no exception. By the summer of 1918, however, the Corps was in need of more service members, many of whom occupied vital administrative and clerical positions throughout the War Department at the time. The idea was circulated and eventually approved to allow women into the Marines to fill these non-combat positions, relieving these men to head out to the front. From Kokomo, Indiana, Ofame Johnson was first in line when the recruiting station in Washington, D.C. opened its doors to women and would become a legend as the first woman Marine. Ofame Jacob was born in May of 1878 to William and Ella B. Jacob in Kokomo, Indiana. Not much is known about her early life in Indiana, but by 1895, she would move with her parents to the nation's capital, Washington, D.C. On June 4, 1895, she is listed as a graduate of Woods Commercial College in D.C. She would continue to live in Washington, D.C. with her husband and parents and found clerical work with the Interstate Commerce Commission. This is where she would find herself through the beginning of the First World War. Initially, American women served their country in a moral and economic support role through the Salvation Army, Red Cross, and numerous other local and national organizations. The closest that women would be able to get to the front would be as nurses in hospital units, treating wounded soldiers at evacuation hospitals behind the lines or as humanitarian workers aiding the soldiers in the trenches. Following the German offensive in the spring of 1918 and their subsequent defeat in the Second Battle of the Marne, the Allied powers now found themselves on the offensive. However, it had been at no small cost. With the casualties sustained by repelling the offensive, as well as the need for trained, battle-ready soldiers for the final push of the war, the military realized that it needed ways to increase the number of trained combat troops in Europe and that they needed to do so quickly. While the United States military wouldn't consider using women as combat troops for decades to come, there was another way that women could bolster the nation's fighting strength in France that began to be discussed. On August 8, 1918, the Secretary of the Navy, Joseph Josephus Daniels, it's a great name, gave his approval allowing women to enroll in the Marine Corps Reserve to serve in clerical positions, which would free up Marines currently occupying those positions to be deployed to the front. On August 13, 1918, Wolfwood Johnson, at age 40, would be at the head of the queue of many women waiting in line to enlist. Rigorous interviews and examinations made for a challenging path towards enlistment in the Marine Corps. One of the many thousands that enlisted. Only 305 were enlisted during the four months of recruiting. As evidenced by her successful enlistment, Johnson was able to clear these challenges. On September 11, 1918, she was promoted to Sergeant. By January of 1919, she remained the only female reservist working in the Quartermaster Department who held the rank. Following the end of the war, the female reservists were gradually discharged from the Marine Corps Reserve. Many, including Sergeant Johnson, elected to stay working in the War Department which it was called, which the DOD was called back then, in the role of civil servants, Johnson would continue her clerical work in the civil service for decades to follow. Ofa would continually stay in touch with her comrades and remained involved in the Marines after she was discharged. Her name would be found amongst the charter members of the Bellow Wood Post One of the American Legion, formed by these pioneers in the Marine Corps. Following service in the Marines, Opal May Johnson lived the rest of her life in Washington D.C. with her husband. Where she would have continued association with the Marine Corps. Sadly, on August 11th, 1955, Ofame Johnson passed away at the age of 76. She will be buried next to her husband at Rock Creek Cemetery in DC. We honor her service. That's it for this episode of Born the Battle. If you yourself would like to nominate a Born the Battle Veteran of the Week, you can. Just email us at podcastva.gov include a short write-up and let us know we'd like to see him or her as the Born the Battle Veteran of the Week. And as always, I am reminded by people smarter than me to remind you that the Department of Veterans Affairs does not endorse or officially sanction any entities that may be discussed in this podcast, nor any media products or services they may provide. I say that because if you're a veteran artist, if you create poetry or music, we will feature your auditory art as our outro if you email us Again, at podcast at va.gov with all the pertinent details. What you're hearing now is the song Conquer by B Ferrari and Zhao off the Ninja Punch music album, Sounds Like Freedom, Volume 1. For more stories on veterans and veteran benefits, check out our website, blogs.va.gov. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to it. And for more stories on veterans and veteran benefits, check out our website, blogs.va.gov and follow the VA on social media. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, RallyPoint, DEPT VET Affairs, US Department of Veterans Affairs, no matter the social media, you can always find us with that blue check mark. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.